Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 7th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Euro coming to you this week from Wolf Hole, Arizona, and welcome you to FOTW, your home for all things hunchback chumps and humpback chub. This week, we'll be talking about the chumps. Oh, wait, wait. No, 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 no. We're talking about the chubs this week. Next week, we'll tackle the chumps. Or maybe we'll do chubs again. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Sweet. You see what I worked That's in? Good. It's funny because it's also foreshadowing. <laughs> So we're headed to a pretty special place to talk about the humpback chub, as Guy kind of alluded to. And our guest is Mike Pillow from our Arizona Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office. So welcome, Mike. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. It's it's always exciting to be able to, to talk about this really cool fish. Yeah, we're excited. I've actually been wanting to talk to you about these fish for, I think, about 10 years now. We first met at Fisheries Academy. That's been a while now. You mentioned you worked on them back then. And that said, we were hoping you can take us first to the Colorado River. We know it flows through traditional homelands of a number of tribes. It's been cutting dramatic canyons in the Southwest for millions of years. And we really just want to get a feel for the place and the waters that have shaped this pretty neat fish. Yeah, thanks, Katrina. The humpback chub is, um, they they live in the Colorado River and several of the tributaries. Actually, where they exist now is deep canyons. That definitely cut through the landscape here. And so it's really, really harsh conditions for I mean, humans, right? And maybe even more so for these fish. It's historically, these have been really, really muddy water. A lot of runoff from wide areas come, come through these rivers. And there's a uh, tributary of the Colorado River that comes in just over 60 miles downstream from what we call Lee's Ferry, which is kind of where all the boaters put in. And that stream is the Little Colorado River, and that's kind of the central hub of where the Grand Canyon population of humpback chub live. They use the warmer waters for spawning. They go in there every springtime and go in there and, and spawn in usually March and April. A lot of them come back out after the spawn, usually in the late spring, early summertime, when the monsoon floods push them all out. These rivers run through a lot of tribal lands, and, and some of these areas are pretty sacred to a lot of indigenous people in the area. And so are the fish that live in this area. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with this place and those waters. And I'm just wondering, like, you know, you've got all the people that go to the Grand Canyon and they see the waters. And a lot of times you're not going to see this fish necessarily. So I guess, are you able to just paint a picture of what this fish looks like? Like, how big is it? It's got a really unique kind of face for a fish and, and shape. So we'd like to hear just a description of what it looks like. Definitely. Yeah. So when you're looking at the fish, it's, it's got a smallish head, kind of a pointy nose, but the uh, subterminal mouth, which means the mouth is kind of underneath the nose, its nose has these little flaps that help to direct water down through its nasal cavity to, to help it when it's smelling. So those are pretty pronounced in some of the larger fish. And little tiny, cute black eyes, beady little eyes. But as you get past the head, that's where it really gets interesting. You get this hump, this bump that starts right behind the head and goes all the way back to the dorsal fin. And it's just a pronounced kind of fleshy hump that uh, I don't know how else to explain it. It's a hunchback. After that, you know, the body is like a really torpedo-shaped body. As the body goes to the tail, the tail has a really, really narrow caudal peduncle, which is kind of right where the body, the tail meet, and then splays out to a really sharp forked tail. 
just pretty sleek. The color of the fish is like a silver. It's like really silvery in the, on the body, but then towards the dorsal region, you get a kind of an olive color. But the scales are kind of deeply embedded into the skin, so they don't protrude out. So you don't really feel them when you pick up the fish. And they're really built for this kind of swift, turbid canyon water. And that's something interesting about fish is that you can look at them and really know a lot about where they live just based on kind of some of those features you're describing. I mean, these guys are made to survive in this very unique kind of habitat like you described. Definitely. Really turbid, really turbid waters, really like high, low. You know, they're suited for that type of business, just scooting up river when it's when the river's got some pretty high current. So So I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about that, Mike. So I think you did a great job of describing what this fish looks like. I sometimes like to liken it to the Fiat Multipla, sometimes called the world's ugliest car, although an ugly car does not make an ugly fish. That said, you know, you mentioned this really big defined hump that this fish has. And I grew up in northern Utah. I saw these fish on the conservation posters all the time. And it's not the only fish in this system that has that hump. You also see it in the bony tail and also in the razorback whoopig suey sucker. And knowing that those fish come from different families, you have the catastomids and the leucicids, it kind of suggests that you have a convergent evolution that's selecting for this hump. And I'm just wondering, what does this hump do and why do these different fishes evolve to have it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think there's no answer quite yet. We don't really exactly know why these fish have this hump, but there are a lot of speculations. We know that the hump is mostly muscle tissue. There's not a lot of fatty tissue, not a lot of nerves running through there. So it's just mostly muscle tissue. It's been speculated that perhaps it's to help to stabilize the fish in the high currents. But more recently, it's been thought to be kind of a predation avoidance feature. They evolved along with the Colorado pike minnow here in the, oh, in the Colorado yeah. River. The Colorado pike minnow used to be the, the top predator in the Colorado River system. And so the humpback chub had to deal with the, that as a, since it evolved with the Colorado pike minnow. These humps may provide some sort of extra depth to the fish to not eat, go so easily into the mouth of uh, such a big predator in there. So... That's one of the theories why these fish may have have evolved these humps. That's a pretty interesting take. I mean, it makes sense with talking about like the size of the pike minnow's mouth and also that you don't see necessarily this hump in other fishes that live in highly turbid areas, well, not necessarily turbid, high flow areas. That said, on the other side, talking about potentially using it to keep stable and sense water flows, I was noticing the shape is sort of similar to the adipose fins that you see in other fishes. And it kind of got me thinking, maybe trying to do a little bit of critical thinking here. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. the case or not, that people have been talking about how adipose fins might help to sense flow on those fishes that have them. And so perhaps the the two are related in their form and function. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, regardless of the purpose, it's a distinct form nonetheless. It is. Definitely. These fish that live in turbid waters always interest me because, I, I mean, if you look at some of the, the waters that we're talking about here, other places, Yukon River in Alaska, I mean, they look very turbid. You can't really see in them. How are these fish feeding? Are they using that lateral line to sense the pike minnow? Like just kind of how are they existing in this area that's just hard to see in the water? Yeah, it's, uh, it's like I said, harsh environment down there. And these fish do like do really well in the muddy the muddy water when other species like the the non-natives that come in that they don't do so well. And I think a lot of it has to do with their sense of smell too. Like I meant I mentioned 
earlier that there was a, that they have these these flaps on their nose. And I think these help to, like I said, direct water and they have really, really good sense of smell. Even when it's muddy, even when they can't see anything, they can still forage and find some food, basically following their nose. That's cool. What's the nature of what you do with the humpback jobs? I know you've been working down in that office for a while, correct? Can you just tell us a little bit about your job and what you guys do seasonally with these fish? Sure. Yeah. So so our job is to, well, we have a couple projects that we work on. And our main project is to monitor this fish, right? Monitor the population in the Grand Canyon, particularly in the Lua Colorado River. We also have a, a monitoring trip that goes along the main stem Colorado River because while the, the biggest aggregation of chubs is right there in the Little Colorado River, they also exist in little pockets and areas throughout the entire Colorado River. And so we like to, we like to get where their home zone is right there in the, in the Little Colorado River. But then we also like to check out how the populations, how the little aggregations of the populations are doing along the Colorado River. So what we do is four times a year, we, we take a helicopter, fly into the Little Colorado River, set up there for 10 days, and just set a bunch of hoop nets to catch these fish. On a, our first trip, we go in there. Um, it's a marking trip for our mark recapture population estimate. So we go down there, we, we capture as many fish as we can, set all these hoop nets out, put marks in the fish that don't have marks, we use passive integrated transponder tags, PIT tags, that we can that gives each fish a unique code, unique alphanumeric code. First trip is in April. We come back in May, do the same thing, and then we can generate a population estimate, an abundance estimate for the spring, the spring spawning population. And we do that same thing when we go back in the fall. And on that trip, we're looking mostly at the um, the young year population, how the spawn went, how the recruitment went, how the babies are doing. That's one of our primary objectives is to get a get kind of numbers. Yeah. How many fish we have in the, in the aggregation, in the population there at the Little Colorado River. And with fish, I mean, it's hard because you're not doing a census. So for folks not familiar, you're going to be marking them. And then mm-hmm. when you're capturing fish again, you're seeing what proportion have a mark and what proportion don't. And then you can kind of guess how big the population is, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And you can get a, you get a good idea of what the size of the population is, and you can compare that to the previous years and and, and see how they're doing. We also have a uh, program where we translocate fish. So the Little Colorado River has has a lot of waterfalls, a lot of, a lot of falls. Typically, these falls, the fish can get up on no problem. But there's one area that, for some reason, whether it be because the, the, the CO2 levels are too high, because it's much closer to the to the springs, or because they just don't go up there for some reason. But if the fish don't go up this up this waterfall, so it's an area where there's not not many predators, no predators, lots of food abundance, lots of insects, lots of little speckled bass that these fish like to eat occasionally. And so every year we'll take a few hundred babies and fly them up above the falls, where we found that they grow much faster than their cohorts down below. So these fish that we take up there. As uh, age zero fish, they can be adults like 200 millimeters in like a year and a half or so, as opposed to maybe three years, the ones down below. So, so what we're talking about 
a fish that's on the endangered species list. It's been on there since Nixon signed the ESA into law in 73. Actually, it was it was just last year where um, the Fish and Wildlife Service recommended, and then it was sent into the Federal Register that these fish had been reclassified from endangered to threatened status now. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of the, a, a new a new advancement here in the humpback chub world. That's great. It really, if, if I was in your position, I would be so happy about that, that you can see sort of the work that I, that you've been contributing to has really actually paid off and had a tangible effect on the world. I think that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. There's still some serious threats to the species. But yeah, I know it's great to see that you can make some adjustments and improvements. So, uh, What kind of precautions are you guys taking when you're flying these fish, having to take them up in the air and then bring them back down and put them in? Are you having to keep them like really well oxygenated? Uh, certainly wet, I would imagine. I'm just curious what you guys do. When we're collecting them, we collect them over the week and we keep them housed in the river in these fish barrels that we've kind of made. They can stay in the river and, and just keep contained until they're ready to fly out. And First, we'll usually fly people up to the camp where we're going to fly so that fish, that they can receive the load. And when they're ready to fly out, we throw them all in this um, 55-gallon drum, a few aerators in there. And then we quickly, when the, before the helicopter comes back, get all the fish in the barrel, put all the oxygen, turn it on, strap it down. It's a five-minute flight or so, maybe seven-minute flight for the fish before they land. And then someone's up there to uh, grab them and change the water out. After a few hours, we'll either acclimate them overnight, put them in the river in another barrel, or we'll release them into the river, which you seem to do pretty well on that. Yeah. So you got a pretty cool job, it sounds like. Oh, man. It's a <laughs> it's an incredible job. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful place to work, that's for sure. And these fish are, are I mean, they're, they're really cool. I, I really like them. We know that the Colorado River has obviously seen a lot of changes over the years. I mean, a big water source for tens of millions of people, just lots of changes. Do we know how many of these fish were in the Colorado River, this humpback chub? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. There wasn't any like a published account of these fish until maybe right around 1914. The Cole brothers, actually, the photographers and famous photographers in Grand Canyon decided to come down to the Little Colorado River to take take pictures of the pretty waterfalls and spent the night and they heard splashing down the river and they went to check it out. And there was thousands of them just on the, just splashing on the surface. And so they published this account in national geographic in 1914. They called them Gila trout at the time because, because it (laughs) hadn't really been described yet, but from accounts from the late 1800s, the prospectors and, and residents in the area would, use these fish for food all the time. They did hundreds of thousands or so, just like all over the tributaries and all over the river. So they used to exist in a really, really high abundance here in the, in the canyon. And how are they doing today? Yeah, today the population has stabilized. After the Glen Canyon Dam went in and all the other dams in the Colorado River, they changed the flow regime of the river and started releasing cooler water into the Colorado River. And that uh, did a number on the humpback chub. And for a while, it was the numbers were pretty low, but uh, they've stabilized. Definitely not to the to the historic numbers, but yeah, definitely increased since the uh, like to say the the seventies and, and the eighties and the nineties when we first started like looking at them. So okay. in twenty nineteen, we uh, we had a population estimate of about nine thousand adult 
chubs in the Little Colorado River. That number was a little lower here this last year. We didn't get in there in 2020, but yeah, so so somewhere around nine to eleven thousand, kind of in this in the whole um, Little Colorado River area of the Grand Canyon. But then another interesting, really interesting thing about the Grand Canyon population is that in 2014 we started seeing the population down in the western Grand Canyon, kind of below Diamond Creek and and just a little bit above that. That population start to increase, and so we've had an enormous boom there. And now there's there's many many thousands more done. This is interesting. You've mentioned the kind of Grand Canyon population where you got the Little Colorado and the Colorado come together. What other populations of this fish are out there? So in all, there's five populations that are self-sustaining that we have in the Colorado River system. There's one up in Colorado on the Colorado River um, in an area called Black Rocks. There's one in Westwater Canyon, which is in Utah, also right there in the Colorado River. Desolation and Gray Canyons have a self-sustaining population as well, and that's also in Utah. And then there's a few few hundred still in the population, self-sustaining population in Cataract Canyon up in Utah as well. What's the fishing situation in the areas that you work, in the areas that these chubs are present? Is there fishing happening? And if so, yeah, just kind of what's the scene? Yeah, one of the really unique things about these humpback chub is that their populations, their, their population centers, occur in areas deep into canyons. They're hard to get to, right? So we've got some people who do fishing along the Colorado River, like on trips, on river trips and stuff. There's trout. There's lots of trout, rainbow trouts along the, mostly in the upper sections of the Grand Canyon. So there's folks who like to come down and fish for trout, but um, not super common to have folks come down and, you know, hiking down the Grand Canyon to go go fishing, but it, it does happen. People do it. Yeah. What should people do if they happen to catch one of these chubs? Well, yeah, it, it happens. It does happen. The, these chubs will go after anything that they can get their mouth around. So if that does happen, basically it's the best thing to do is carefully kind of remove the hook and be real gentle and let the little guy go back in the river. Yeah. Don't drag him up on the, yeah. the beach or anything either. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Because some of these big fish that you'll catch, you know, these fish live 40 years or so. So these could be some really, really old fish. And then we do catch a lot of really, really old fish down there. So Mike, my final question for you is if you were to just basically have a message for people about why they should care about the humpback chub, what would you say? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. I mean, they're an ancient fish. They're, you know, three and a half million years. They've been around here and they're just kind of a symbol of the resilience of the nature of animals, of fish, you know, they can, the, what they survive, what, what kind of conditions they live through. I think they represent the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River and basically the entire Colorado River system. It's an incredible, incredible species and something that we need to really work to preserve. This makes me want to go rafting down the Colorado and see if I can Definitely. see this fish. Super Definitely. Cool. Well, cool, Mike. It's been great having you on today. And this is a really neat fish. So we'd encourage everybody to just get out there and enjoy all the fish and learn more about these native fishes that we have in areas like the Colorado River. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely. It's been my absolute pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. 
Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.